Coming to you from the greatest city in the world, this is the number one showbiz podcast. It's Talk for Two. Here's your host, Matt Bailey. Thank you, Gary. Order. Order in the court. Yeah, I've always wanted to open the show like that, and I couldn't think of a more perfect day to do it than today because our guest is a judge on one of the most popular daytime court television shows, Hot Bench. Justice Patricia DeMango was first appointed to serve as a judge in the criminal courts for the city of New York, whoop, whoop, by Mayor Rudy Giuliani. And yes, I did just whoop, whoop, New York because I haven't been to New York in nine weeks, came back to Pennsylvania to wait out the pandemic, and I got to tell you, I've never had a stronger craving for a New York bagel or a New York pizza pizza in my life. Folks, if you know how to get one to rural Pennsylvania, please hit me up because I am going through New York food withdrawal. Anyway, that was a a little digression there. Justice DeMango was the first Italian-American woman ever appointed to that aforementioned position. She was later elected to the New York State Supreme Court in the 2nd and 11th Judicial Districts. And again, she was the first Italian-American woman elected to that position. Soon after, she was elevated to first deputy administrative judge for criminal matters, second judicial district. Now there is a title. She retired as the justice of the Supreme Court of Kings County, New York, and has gone on to become one of the three stars of Hot Bench, created by the one and only Judge Judy Scheindlin. Both Hot Bench and the Judge Judy program, incidentally, just this past week that we organized and recorded this interview, were nominated for Daytime Emmy Awards, and congrats to both shows. I love it when court shows get love, because those of you who listen know I love anything to do with criminal justice, and I gotta admit, I devour these daytime half-hour court shows like you would not believe. Justice Demango and I chatted about everything, and it was such a thrill because I love Hot Bench so much. I mean, you'll hear how she found her passion for the law, and it's through psychology, of all things, which is fabulous. Plus, she gives us her take on the recent sentencing of Aunt Becky, Lori Laughlin. You'll hear what Justice Demango has to say about whether or not Laughlin and her husband will serve their respective sentences amidst the pandemic. I don't want to give any more away because it's a 22-minute interview, but we touch on everything. It felt like much longer in a good way. It didn't feel like it was dragging out. I mean, in a good way, it felt like it was much longer because we touch on so much from her career beginnings to where she is now with Hot Bench. It was absolutely fabulous. Here now to tell us why compassion has been the bedrock of her legal career, our interview with Justice Patricia DeMango. Justice Patricia DeMango, welcome to Talk for Two. How are you? I'm fine, Matt. Thank you for having me. How are you doing? Are you talking to me with a mask on? Uh, A mask on my microphone, funnily enough, but not uh, on my person. How about you? Are you talking to me with a mask on? No, I'm alone in my home. It's one of the few places I feel totally safe. Uh, No masks, no gloves, but a lot of washing. So what have you been doing during this time to keep yourself occupied and uh, to keep your mind off of all of the drama going on about this? You know what's interesting, Matt? Oddly enough, time passes more quickly and with busy things than I expected that it would. Mm -hmm. So I kind of uh, 
I get through the day with a little bit of exercise, not too much, you know, I don't want to strain myself, but a little bit of exercise, a little bit of reading, a little bit of chatting, you know, either Zooming, FaceTiming, or just hiding myself from people so they don't have to look at me on the phone. Uh, and um, some, a lot of eating and a lot of cooking. But I'm really reading books and uh, just put, just spending my time keeping busy. It's amazing. Cleaning. I have the cleanest drawers that you. I think you're going to see around. Oh, that's great. Well, I heard you are quite the cook. And uh, I got to tell you, I love Italian food. So I have to ask, what have you been preparing? What have you been uh, cooking? Any favorite family dishes that you're working on? You know, it's, I have been making family dishes. And what's interesting is that I have a sister who, we, she and I are very close and close in age. We're 16 months apart. And I have a first cousin who grew up with us like a sister. So my sister's Joanne, my cousin's Linda. And every once in a while, I try to make something or put something together. And when I call them, they have a distinctly different uh, memory of what the dish was or when it was served. But mm -hmm. we make a lot of pasta. I make a lot of pasta. I grew up as a kid being a very finicky eater. And macaroni, as we always called it in the home, was something I loved and ate all the time. So I make pasta pizzil, which is pasta with peas. I make pasta fazool, which is pasta with beans. I make with a Sunday gravy and a Sunday uh, sauce. I make marinara sauce. I make um, pasta with lentils, pasta with with anything just about that I could possibly throw in it. Um, but seriously, we made a lot of, I'm, you know, I, I like macaroni and I've been making a lot of pasta dishes and we're kind of working with my sister and my cousin to figure out what we all did and what we do differently. So I'm really enjoying it. I love that. Well, right now I want to go back to the beginning of your career to way, way to the beginning and ask why the law? What got you interested in the law and in pursuing justice? You know, it kind of was a combination of uh, necessity and I think the way I was brought up. Mm -hmm. You know, to, to this day, you know, my, my parents had always been, you know, we, we told the line. We did everything the right way. We were rule followers. Um, my, my parents, if they got something in the mail and they sent them a quarter, they'd make us put it in another envelope and send it back if they didn't, you know, weren't going to join the, the charity or whatever it was. So, you know, we, we learned to always do everything the right way and to stand for what was right. When I was, uh, when I graduated college, I was, I started off being an elementary school teacher mm -hmm. and I was going for my master's degree in psychology at night. And then we had some budget cuts. And of course that caused me to be laid off from teaching and I'd be called back periodically. I continued to go to school at night and finish my degrees, my master's and post-master's. But then my father had this talk with me and he said, uh, get a job or get out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I said, um, well, what if I went back to school? He says, oh, oh yeah, that's great. Because, you know, my family was very big on education. My father was a professional man. My mother, as an immigrant who was born in Italy, came here. Even she went to college for a couple of years before she had me. Mm -hmm. And um, so I said, well, where could I go from here? And that was the real issue, because if I wanted to go to medical school, I would have had to go back undergraduate and take some, you know, chemistry and pre you know, different courses that were prerequisites. And, and, you know, I don't want to kind of date myself, but, you know, early, you know, early on in the years, you know, first of all, there weren't a lot of women going to college. And second of all, there were three, you know, like four professions. You were either a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, 
mm-hmm. or a dentist. Yeah. You know, those were your core professions. Now you're in finance, you're in marketing. There's a million different alternatives for, for young people to choose from. And so I couldn't go back to medical school. I had already been a teacher. Uh, so I went to law school and, and that's kind of how it was. And then once I got into law school, I knew, I knew from that day that I wanted to go into criminal law. I wanted to be a prosecutor and I knew I wanted to be a judge and everything I did, Matt, everything, writing articles, going to meetings, becoming president of organizations, doing whatever it took mm-hmm. was to hopefully get me on the bench. I mean, there was no guarantee, but I did what I could. Well, Judge, I love that you have that psychology degree as well, because one thing I'm curious to know is in your experience and in practice, how psychology, how you have found psychology relates to the law and how you put them both in practice, if you did at all. I did. I mm-hmm. did. I do. Um, I think psychology really relates to almost every interpersonal react, interaction that we have. Mm-hmm. I, I think that people in their own way use a lot of things that if experiences and with people in life, they use that to make evaluations and judgment calls and to behave in, uh, to behave, uh, in particular ways with different people. And so for me, being on the bench and having this background, you know, it's just the simple things like some parents would say to me, you know, when you're, you're plea bargaining, making a negotiation, you're promising someone probation or jail. A lot of mothers would come in the courtroom and I'd, I'd listen to them. I'd call them up and they'd say, my son is, he's a good kid. And you know, your heart breaks because they are good kids. A lot of them. And I would say, yes, he's a good kid, but he's done a bad thing. And we've got to recognize that in order to, to, um, to mold behavior, there's got to be reward, punishment. There's got to be, you know, different things that you would impose to help people. And that, I think a lot of that is how I use my psychology. What kind of individual is this? What kind of individual is before me? And what is it about him that I can glean that will help me resolve this in a way that would be beneficial to him, mm-hmm. that would be beneficial to the victims, if there are any victims in a, you know, in a particular case, and also give the public confidence in the judicial system. So, you know, you've got to weigh it all, and I think psychology was very helpful for me there. I think it makes you more compassionate than other judges? Um, I think that it adds to my compassion. I think that it adds to my ability to, to fashion remedies for things that... Uh, for individuals because I could see the different facets of who they are and I don't see them as one dimensional. I, I see them as a uh, multifaceted people. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, it's very hard to, cause when you're compassionate, you really feel, and I really feel, I mean, there are times I've had to step off the bench and, and cry. Mm-hmm. You feel for people, but the thing is you have to step back because you need what you do in case a, you need to do in case B and C and D you know, you can't always, you, you can't say, well, I don't like this person, so I'm going to do this, or I feel sorry for this person, I'm going to do that. So you really have to put those emotions, hold them at bay while you, you're trying to do the right thing. Well, and that ability to tune in to people, I can imagine, is very important in a lot of those cases on Hotbench because a lot of the time, of course, we don't see all of the everything. It's edited down. But a lot of the time, a lot of that evidence is circumstantial. And the three of you almost have to go on who you trust and who has the better story, if not the most reliable evidence before you. 
You know what's interesting about because people always say, oh, it's just circumstantial evidence. It's just circumstantial evidence. And yeah. in the law, when we charge a jury, we actually have a jury charge where we talk about circumstantial evidence versus direct evidence. And oftentimes, circumstantial evidence can be as strong, if not stronger, than direct evidence. And I'll, and I'll give you an example of that. Please. Direct evidence is something that an individual, a witness, either sees, hears, tastes, smells, touches, you know, it's of the five senses. So if I say, as a witness, I saw John Smith punch Joe in the face, okay, that's direct evidence, and you might say that's strong evidence, because I say, here I am, I saw it. But if I'm a, a liar, if I'm a person who lies, or has lacked credibility, or is a friend of John's or Joe's, you might not trust exactly what I'm saying. But if you have some circumstantial evidence of perhaps, let's just say, we always use the example of a burglary, you see snow. You see footsteps in the snow. You see the, a person at the door. You, you know, you say, well, now that's strong evidence because it just finished snowing. You see the footsteps from, from A to the door, you know, so you can conclude from that that A went from there, a, point A to point B. Maybe more credible because it's all objective, but it's all circumstantial. Am I being clear on that or am I getting a little? No, 100%. I understand it. That's That's very clear. Yes. So circumstantial evidence can, you know, can often be very helpful and, and really, you know, you see the kid come in the room with the chocolate ice cream on his face and he says, I didn't eat any ice cream. Now, you never saw him. Basically, that's circumstantial evidence. Yeah. But you could pretty much guess that, you know, that's what he did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he ate the ice cream. Um, so you, you learn a lot. You learn it both in the law and you and you learn things in life. And psychology, to me, has been an immeasurable help in all of this. What excited you most about going from this incredible uh, career in uh, criminal courts, which I go over in the intro, uh, what excited you most from going from criminal cases to these civil cases between just everyday people on the show? Well, first of all, I love learning new things. And mm -hmm. in the course of doing the show, I have learned a lot of law that in, in areas that I never focused on as a criminal judge, as a judge in the criminal term. Mm -hmm. So... When something comes up, for instance, you know, is there impossibility of fact here? Is there impossibility of performance? Or what do you need in a lease? Can you, uh, do you need 30 days or 60 days notice? And what is all this about? You know, I had to go to the internet and go to the statutes and read them and say, oh, okay, I understand this now and bring it with me onto the bench. And then, of course, that, as if, you know, to your point in the last question, that going back to these individuals to hear their story. And to see who you believe and whether or not someone is credible, uh, it, it really, I learned a lot. And I took with me some old knowledge and I learned some new things. Wow. I totally, yeah, that's exciting. That seems like it was uh, an yeah. invigorating, invigorating challenge for you. And, uh, th and that's just on the law, not to mention what it was like to be on TV every day. Yeah. <laughs> Is that a challenge too? Is it is that a challenge to to do the law in a I don't want to say performative, but certainly in a very different structure where you have to be mindful that that you are on television. Um, well, truth be told, I'm kind of a little more mellow on the TV bench than <laughs> I was in the real bench. Um, but I I did I I don't change who I am. I mean, right. people who knew me as a judge know, you know, they would like, you know, sometimes I get text messages from people. That was so Judge Domingo what I saw you do today or that was so, you know, um we miss that on the bench. 
but I think that um, I'm kind of I'm kind of comfortable with who I am with or without the cameras. And I did a lot of high profile cases, and so I had cameras in the courtroom kind of often, or news par especially news people and mm -hmm. uh, news um, writers and all. So I did, in fact, um, I did, I'm comfortable with that, and I and I don't feel I've changed in any way with it. I love that. I got two more things for you. One's a real case, and then one's one more question about the uh, about Hot Bench. But first, want to switch gears. Talk about, uh, and your PR told me I could talk about this, just uh, to get your quick take on Lori Laughlin pleading guilty, and uh, she's going to eventually, when COVID is over, serve, I think, two months. What do you make of that whole college admissions scandal? Because it just seems like the crime for rich people, that, you know, it's this unattainable thing. I don't think a lot of people fully understand what happened. Uh, personally, I don't think it had to do with the education. Yeah, I think that what these what the parents did was really about the status of putting their children in schools that would give the appearance that they were successful and bright and dedicated students. Because really, what they did it's it's very and this is more psychology now than law. It's very sad yeah. because it was very harmful what they did to their children. They they conveyed. They did two things to them. One, they conveyed the message, we have no confidence or faith in your ability to get into any school, let alone a good school. Mm -hmm. And two, we're now putting you in a situation where you are in above your head. And you're going to be floundering out there with all these kids who are really deserve to be in there and, and are going to be much brighter. And we're going to and it's going to impact on who these people are, who these children are in their future life, because they're going to be they're going to really they're going to really stand out as losers in a, in a place where they, they are the, the least successful, intelligent people in the school. The second thing, of course, always is they're taking spots from kids who have worked and dedicated. You know, they weren't just playing games at home and, you know, fiddling around with, with hair and makeup. They were actually really struggling to do well, to compete in a very, very competitive world. And their seat was taken in a situation, and they'll never get it back because you. How do you know wh who that student would have been? There are so many variables that go into a, a college accepting a student. Sometimes it's all about the grades and the law boards, and sometimes it's about your personal life experience and what jobs you had before. So you, you can't say, well, this person would have been next to, to come into the school. It, so there are lost opportunities for you know innumerable number of other students. Uh, with regard to the case, with the sentencing itself, you know, it's interesting, individuals hold out from pleading guilty for, for a number of reasons. Some of them are absolutely in, uh, innocent, and others are thinking that they don't know what information the prosecution has. Mm -hmm. But you know, I mean, I yeah. know if I forged a photograph, I know if I've done something. They knew what they did. They knew that they set up these rowing, they knew that they took the photographs, they knew that they, they knew what they did. So they were banking on the fact that the government did not have the same information, that, that did not have all the information. And initially, of course, they come into the system. The first thing is the judge says, oh, we'll make a motion to dismiss. Not the judge, I'm sorry, the lawyer, I'm talking from my own perspective. <laughs> we'll make a motion to dismiss. We'll get the case dismissed. Then yeah. when it wasn't dismissed, and I think that happened on like May 8th, then mm -hmm. when it wasn't dismissed, they were like, okay, now we're in phase two of this. So now the indictment's pending, whatever. We now need to talk about this. And then, of course, you get into what they call the exchange of information or discovery. 
And now they start to see the information that the government has against them, at which point the lawyer says, hey, you know, they got you dead to rights. They have this, they have that, they have this, they have that. Maybe we should sit down with the, with the government and say, and talk about a realistic resolution here. And in this case, the realistic resolution distinguished even, not only did it distinguish between uh, Lori and her husband, but it distinguished between them and anyone else who previously pled guilty for their different roles and um, and responsibilities. I mean, some people, you know, we had $15,000 versus $150,000 or whatever the difference in the money was. So here they resolve it with a promise or a plea with a negotiated sentence, it looks like, of two months in jail for her and $150,000 fine and I think 150 hours of community service. And for Giannulli, her husband, he was going to be getting I think five months in jail with a $250,000 fine, quarter of a million dollars, and I think 250 hours of uh, community uh, service. And the judge, I think, you know, as we always do, we always leave some reservation and say, if something comes to my attention between now and the date of sentence, I'm not bound by this plea negotiation. Now, in the state court or in my courtroom, I would say, if I can't keep this promise, then I'll either give you an opportunity to accept the new promise or I'll give you an opportunity to take your plea back and then sit the case down for trial. So I here might be very similar as well. The judge might have said, listen, I, I get this. I understand the negotiations that went on here. I'm willing to, you know, likely to go along with that, but I can't, you know, I'm not going to put this in stone because if I find out something else, this deals, this deals off, and either you'll have an alternative here, which I'll give you, and you can take that, or we set it down for trial and give you the plea back. And that's, that's generally what happens here. You think she'll serve it, or do you think COVID and the pandemic means that two months is, is nothing and it'll, be, it'll get commuted to uh, a home sentence? Well, you know, they'd like to move it up. Of course, her attorneys um, mm -hmm. would like to move the sentencing up so that it does fall within the pandemic. Because after all, I mean, they're releasing people from prisons with who are serving substantially longer sentences for more heinous, yeah. you know, violent yeah. kinds of crimes. Uh, they're releasing some of those people, but they are. Um, I, I don't know whether or not they will actually move the date up. Right now, I think the date is set for August. They may, they may be, and I'm sure the judge considered that when he put it off. Um, so they, they might, or they may say, the judge may say, "Look, I moved it up on the, because under the belief that you would serve the sentence, but because of the pandemic, I'm not going to put more people in that ultimately will move for release." So. Uh, we're going to put it off till September, or like you just said, they could say, "Well, we're going to subject, we're going to give you um, house arrest." Okay. I think if they went through all these negotiations, maybe the government won't be so flexible with the house arrest. Oh. You know. All right, and my last question for you has to do with your fellow judges and how the three of you work together. If you could describe your legal philosophy versus the other two judges in like two sentences or less, Paris, because I know we got to go here in a minute, uh, how would it be and uh, how would you describe that chemistry and, and how your philosophies work together? I think we have one philosophy, all of us, and yeah. that is to do the right thing, to do justice, and to to do it obviously swiftly, which the courts don't always do because <laughs> of the volume that they have. I think that we come to it 
and this is where we differ, I believe. I think we come to it from a different place mm-hmm. because we might have, as we talked about, our lives experience, our life experiences bring us to different um, to, to different credibility places. Like I might find somebody based on what I know about a certain situation, I might find somebody more credible than uh, the other two. They may, or vice versa. But I, um, I'm, but we get along in a way that's interesting because you, we have, you, we have the respect for one another that shows we recognize that there are these differences and we see them, and yet we're still going to try to get to that common goal together. But that doesn't always happen. We don't always, we don't always get to the same place. We don't. We have different backgrounds. You know, I'm all criminal. My, uh, Judge Corriero is a little bit of criminal, and um, I don't know if he's the much civil. Tanya comes to it more from the uh, this, the civil side of it. So we do bring different legal experiences in, and that combined with our personal experience, you know, it's like an appellate court. Actually, we were, you know, we come in from three places, but we all have one goal, and that's to do the right thing. Well, I love it. Judge Domango, thank you so much. This was a pleasure. Hot Bench is one of my favorite court shows. Thank you so much for your time. This was a treat. Matt, it was a pleasure speaking with you. This was just, it was a wonderful interview. I was very comfortable with you, and, and, and I appreciate you taking the time to, to speak with me as well. Thank you. Justice, thank you so much for your time. I thoroughly enjoyed talking with you. And by the way, thank you so much for being the first judge and the first host of a court show that we have ever had on this program. It was an honor, Your Honor. Okay, sorry, bad pun. Everyone, check your local listings for Hot Bench. It's in what they call first-run syndication, so you have to kind of look in those listings to see where it airs in your neighborhood. Justice Demango and her fellow judges, Tanya Acker and Michael Corriero, make compelling arguments in every single case they evaluate. It's so much fun. I cannot encourage you enough to go and check it out. That is it for us this week. Remember to subscribe in iTunes, Stichter, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at talk for 2 And of course, you can always reach out to me directly at T-A-L-K-F-O-R-T-W-O-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. And you can check out talkfor2.com. That's T-A-L-K-F-O-R-T-W-O.com for so much more content. Everyone, I hope you are staying safe during this pandemic. And I just want to say thank you for spending some of your quarantine time with me. And please stay safe, be well, stay healthy, wash those hands, social distance. We will get through this together. Signing off, I'm Matt Bailey, reminding everyone out there to keep talking for two. You can hear more show business interviews with the stars at talkfor2.com. <laughs>